Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to Talking CFD with Robin Knowles. It's kind of like my show, but for CFD nerds, prepare to ignite. Simon? Hello, Robin. How you doing? Hey. Uh, it still boggles my mind that we managed to pull this off, just uh, yeah, the, the technology these days. It's amazing. I don't think I've actually seen you in person for years. No, well, um, we we did try the whole uh, the whole video thing, but I'd just say don't get carried away with yourself. This is this is week two. We have we have six to get through, so let's not be uh, let's not be pulling any uh, technology. No, I'm, up, I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> um, so yeah, as you say, week two of the social. Um, a couple of more podcast episodes um, out in the world. Um, what have you been doing since last time? Since last time, I guess um, the thing that's possibly relevant to everybody is I went to the NAFEM's European Conference on Simulation-Based Optimization down in London. Um, and that was quite interesting because I've not been to the optimization-type conferences or events. Uh, I can't remember the last one I went to. It's been more focused on the kind of just the simulation side. Um, so that was quite eye-opening. Um, got a oh, few really? uh, tips. Well, just because there's lots of good stuff going on um, from an academic research perspective. Uh, okay. Uh, and so, I mean, that's been my feel for some of the NAFEMS conferences I've been for. There's been a slight academic bias in terms of the content. Um, you don't find lots and lots of people um, from industry with problems immediately there, but there's quite a good kind of dynamic around what's going on in academia. And, you know, some big players from from industry, Rolls-Royce and, and so forth. Um, but it was just interesting to see what some of the methods are coming out. Um, I think I think it clashed almost directly with the Open Phone Conference in Berlin, if I've got yes, that right. Uh, I, might, which, I might swing round, back round to that later on. Uh, okay, jolly good. Uh, I guess the thing I was going to say there was some of the things I've heard from the um, LinkedIn and other media posts around the Open Phone Conference is quite a good amount of content and direction around uh, your favorite topic machine learning um, and there was a fair amount of that um, at the uh, simulation based optimization conference as well so this in was different flavors simulation not expressly cfd correct so it is and talking about not, not sector specific no, not sector specific, so that it was very much talking about optimization approaches in the world of simulation, but that could have been an electromagnetic simulation, a structural simulation, a fluid simulation, any any flavor that you that you prefer. How coupled are these things? As in can you are they deeply embedded or can you see some of these techniques just being applicable to anything that has a sort of compute intensive simulation on the back end? Yeah, I mean certainly that one. Uh the the latter um i mean the thing that's interesting to me is how many of the techniques could be used to solve problems that aren't necessarily directly simulation based so a lot of brexit uh, (laughs) no okay sorry Uh, (laughs) i was going to make some funny joke about applying bayesian optimization so there's uh, no funny jokes we can make about it no no no, let's just leave that one but i mean some of the some of the focuses are around you know um having a method that allows you to predict the most valuable um, design to test next. So say you've okay. got a, a design of experiments and you've decided to have, oh, okay, I'll do, I'll do 20 initial runs. So you've got some data for your 20 initial runs. Um, I like the idea of then having some, 
statistical influence on where your next um, where your next design of experiments test is, not necessarily the one where you think the best performance will be. With a goal in mind, or as yeah. in for reducing error in a surface or something like that? Yeah, so for essentially um, finding, finding the potential best design quicker. So um, you might not necessarily directly explore, I don't know, the maxima in the in the relationship that you found from your initial runs, you might f- explore somewhere else because actually there's a better chance of that somewhere else giving you uh, a higher performing result and also um, places that then give you um, reduced uncertainty and a better general fit of your, you know, um, your surrogate model for your, yeah. you know, for the performance of your thing. So um, that was super interesting. Um, a lot, I think quite a few of the, talks referenced your and i old friend Criggin, who we come across yeah (laughs) back all those years ago um with the advantage cfd and total sim day oh no i was Uh, on it but i was i came across it even before that introduced to it in the tech plot days of um taking my discrete points of experimental data and um interpolating that onto a surface okay Uh, that's good old tech plot well <laughs> absolutely um so i guess um my interest was then some of the new ones so it's uh gaussian processes and bayesian optimization are the newfangled uh i don't know Kriggin for 2019 okay um, i'm gonna get a tattoo of that then yeah <laughs> somewhere where you can see where you, where you can see it but nobody else can right no no i'm gonna put it uh, forearm something like that uh, okay Oh, that'll be one on each arm, right? So yeah, it's quite long, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess my interest is then, well, that's great from a simulation perspective. Um, and what you can do is then you can kind of couple your simulation control to your uh, Bayesian optimizer that you say, okay, I'm going to run 20, uh, 20 design of experiments runs, um, and then I'm going to look at the numbers, and then my Bayesian optimizer will tell me where to go next, and I'll automatically kick off my simulation to go there. And you kind of just let it tell you where the where the optimum is of its own accord. So I kind of like that Ooh, yeah. dynamic. I also like the dynamic of saying, well, okay, what if your input isn't a simulation? What if it's a industrial manufacturing process? So okay, I'm tweaking the tweaking the bells and whistles on my um, I don't know my uh, my sunglass making machine, um, and I'm not sure which bell and whistle to tweak next to get a better pair of sunglasses. That might be a nice way of doing it. You know, it's kind of quite agnostic to the input set you just need to be trying to find a a performance maximum or minimum against a set of input criteria and that could be you know uh, dials on a machine or you know turbulence modeling constants it doesn't really care my mind went straight to race car setup but then the complicated aspect there is that you've got a uh, driver in the loop and uh, optimizing for driver happiness is uh, tricksy well, yes, you've just got to keep telling the driver he's great, right? And then he'll go faster. Yeah. And his dad will pay. <laughs> um, speaking of which, my since last time was a um, quite nice, because it's, it's been a while, but a win and a couple of podiums. Okay, what, for um, race teams that you're involved with? Yeah. Oh, well done. Care to share where? Well, Any details available? No, and that brings me to the next question of... Um, so I tend to not be in a position where I can talk about it. What? Um, but you do see people talking about who they work with. What, what's your kind of historical experience of that? And what's your kind of take on sharing who you work with? Do you think customers are generally open to it? Or are your kind of customer, is it is it super secret? 
I guess I my initial feeling is that it's very customer specific. Um, you know, it's a it's a case of if you if you're talking about having a particular knowledge in the field. So I don't know uh, your example CFD for for race car aerodynamics. Um, I guess a new customer would have to have expected you to have worked with other customers in order to be good at it. So it's kind of implicit that you have, um, but that doesn't mean you have to kind of share who and how, certainly not the how in some of the more um, niche areas and, and you kind of bespoke things that you might have done. So um, I, I think for me, it's something you just have to be aware of as you talk to different people. I've got a feeling this is going to sneak back into a later point in the conversation, but uh, okay. we shall see. Intriguing. I mean, so that's my view of, you know, obviously if, if there's something that you've done that's particularly novel for a particularly client, then, you know, there's an expectation there that that, that stays within that relationship. But you've still got to place that within the broader set of having experience in the field, which is why you're good at what you do and why you would, you know, like to think that other customers would be interested in you providing them some services. So it's a kind of balancing, balancing between those two things. I feel like I'm sitting on the fence quite, you know, quite significantly there. What's your take on it? No, because it is a, it is a, it depends. You get some customers who are super excited about the fact that they've done some CFD. And I think it tends to be kind of almost sector specific where if you are doing CFD and you know that most of your, um, competitors if that's how you want to put it aren't then you potentially are in a good position to shout about it it's a technical advantage it's a competitive advantage we know what we do in ours is better than theirs and this is look we can demonstrate it because we have scienced it out to use a uh, a term from the old days um whereas when everybody's doing cfd there's probably less less to shout about partly because you might be revealing that um, you're not actually as good at it as some of the other people or it's kind of your it's still what you do that's different with your cfd might be your competitive advantage again so i, f- I find a lot of mine is within sort of race cars or performance sport elite sport that kind of thing where a lot of the time they really don't want to talk about it um, they don't want to give anything at all away um i nearly got a sticker on one of the cars this year but um due to uh, contractual reasons we backed away from that um partly because they wanted almost about what was it about 50 percent of the value of the project was what they the value they placed on a sticker on the car um i okay. didn't <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it on for nothing. I'm going to photo. I'll Photoshop it on. Uh, um, I mean, your description there kind of reminds me of. I'm sure we've talked about this in the past. The uh, the classic case when you and I were both involved in Formula One, where you'd know other people from other Formula One teams who were doing CFD, um, and everybody knew that everybody else was doing CFD. Uh, but with regards to what you could actually say, you were you were essentially forbidden to share the number of cells in your CFD model. That wasn't even something you were prepared to talk about. So, no. you know, no, nothing on complexities of um, turbulence modelling or you know, all the other all the other tricks that you could do. You couldn't even say, oh, yeah, my, I, I mesh my car with 100 million cells. That was, you just couldn't even reveal that level of information. The secretion was so, or the perception around the secrecy was 
was so tight. I mean, I don't think it would have made any difference, really. Who, but and nobody dare say that even that. No, it sounded like it was going to turn into a Monty Python sketch. There, <laughs> one hundred million cells. You were lucky. We only had three cells and a uh, calculator. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's. Uh, we could go. We could go down a long dark hole with that one. Let's let's leave that there. <laughs> um, so that's what we've been up to. I've gone, bearing in mind it's pretty much the end of the season and now we're talking about wins and a couple of podiums. It's not been a good season, so I'm not going to celebrate it too much from the point of view of the season, but from a weekend, fairly happy. There's been a couple of podcasts since we last spoke. Um, shall we dig into those, what your takeaways yes. are? What our takeaways well, are? I think um, I super enjoyed both of them. Um, I think if we uh, if we pick up with James from Navia. Uh, I think the obvious one for you and I is the uh, the, the super super interesting point around um, in-house hardware versus cloud hardware, um, which is something that you and I have talked about a bit in the past. But I I was interested in James's view, particularly that um, in terms of CFD method innovation, if that's one of your areas oh, yeah. of focus areas of focus then the in-house hardware route is uh in his view a hands-down winner so that yes. was obviously super interesting to me uh maybe we should try and unpack that a little bit yeah yeah definitely i um so for anybody who wants a little behind the scenes sneak peek as to how the podcast works normally i have a little um pre-interview with uh with the guests to kind of get an idea of what we're going to talk about so i've got some ideas going in when i reach out to people i've got some ideas of what i think they're going to have an interesting take on that we can we can talk about and try and make it so that people have different ones and that's why the the cloud question was was phrased as it was because uh, and that's why james had that kind of reaction because i i knew that they didn't do everything in the cloud and uh, when we'd had our pre-interview he i think he uh, his response was uh, i knew you were going to ask me that um because obviously <laughs> i have a uh, pulled shawl for the cloud um but one thing that I thought was was interesting from my point of view was that James thought that what they were doing was unusual in that, you know, if you were setting up a company now, you would go all in on the cloud, wouldn't you? I guess that's what everybody's doing. We're doing something unusual where I think it's probably the other way around. Um, I don't think there are that many people taking huge advantage of the or going all in on the cloud or being cloud first or whatever i think a lot of people who are, are setting things up around now probably are still do still have some machines keeping the office warm and as somebody who is setting something up around about now you could probably you've probably got a bit more of a take on that than i have uh, yeah so my view is actually quite similar to james's with when you start to think about um your workflow and innovative methodologies. So um, yeah. for me, the cloud is a hands-down winner for you know on-demand scalability. So if you've got a client project coming up um, and you know you're going to have to do quite a lot of uh, front-wing CFD models for one of your – front spoiler, sorry, for your race class, I imagine. I don't think you've got front wings, have you? Don't try and, front- don't try and sneak it out of me. <laughs> well, well, that, yeah, that, that's the end of that try then. Okay, you know, but so you've got twenty geometries of, of whatever part of the car to worry about, um, and you need them all running in a couple of days. Then you know, boom, 
get yourself on AWS, GCP, or Azure, or your cloud provider of choice, um, and, and you're off. You know, you've got the scalability. You know, that that scalability has pretty much been commoditized. So that's for me, that's pretty much a no-brainer. Um, having done a few things um, as a sole trader, as a you know, years back before I took the took the big plunge, um, did a little bit of work on an oil and gas application, um, and I would never have jumped straight into the cloud for that so um my current approach is i bought a, a second-hand dell workstation uh, something you know something oldish four cores but decent amount of ram just so that if i've got any methodology that i'm not too sure about i can uh, work through the methodology locally at no immediate additional cost before i then use my uh AWS account for some on-demand scalability against that methodology once I've figured it out. Um, and I guess the translation from my example, which was just talking about a single workstation, to James's example is relatively straightforward once you've got you know models that you're running for a range of clients that regularly need that level of um, compute power. Yeah. Um, so I guess in uh, I guess in my mind, the interesting things are obviously there's a significant upfront cost um, with regards to purchasing. I think James said 320 cores. So, you know, that's not. Um, yeah, that's not in one box, is it? No, it's not change you find at the back of your sofa. Um, so there's a, you know, there's an element there of having that level of availability in terms of your cash flow or, you know, sufficient certainty and belief in your incoming workload um, that will justify that. Um, and then for me, once you've once you've got that kind of financial confidence, then it's massively enabling because the kind of the development cost in terms of your workflows and methodologies in terms of open folk, using James' example, you know, are, are pretty much negligible. You're you're paying for your cluster from your your client playing projects, and you need to work out a particular new workflow for I don't know. Um, pedestrian comfort in one of your um, city models you know then it's you've got the capability to do that at scale and at low cost you know try to do that part on the cloud for me is um, frustrating in the sense that you're kind of it's costing you money to be wrong whilst you're figuring out what you want your workflow to be Um, and it doesn't kind of necessarily wash out like that but i guess that's just my perception of okay i need to tweak this model oh that wasn't quite right oh darn that was another 300 pounds oh hang on what if i change that oh it kind of just brings it much more yeah, yeah, yeah. Into, into your into your face when you're looking at your monthly bottom line of oh okay it cost me two grand to make that work that's what um, i like about it <laughs> oh well, <laughs> well it just means that you have to be much more efficient when you do it yeah um so yeah the i think i mentioned in the in the interview how kind of makes perfect sense when you've got this kind of base load and and that's kind of what development is that you've got this this um base load of of runs that you can you can always keep this machine ticking over um so i'm not a big fan of the idea of bursting into the cloud i think we might have discussed this before um because i think it very much depends on your your workflow if you're built locally building very large artisanal handcrafted meshes that uh, go into the millions of cells and you've you're thinking about bursting into the cloud and talking about uploading gigabytes of data um it becomes a little bit cumbersome if you've got a workflow 
such as a, an open foam snappy type workflow where the mesh is generated can be generated remotely just as easily as it can be locally then that bursting makes a bit more sense so it, it kind of does make some sense depending on your workflow but this idea it never sat really comfortably with me that i'm going to have a machine that is most of the time either not doing anything or not doing a lot of customer work and then when it does need to do a lot of customer work it's probably going to be underspect you know how long does your queue get before it becomes unacceptable um and there were, there's lots of aspects of, of running in the cloud that I that I like, apart from the uh, the scalability and the upfront smack you in the face cost. Um, I don't know if you saw um, Darren Stevens from Applied CCM. They have a uh, a fairly regular meetup that looks pretty cool, but it's in Melbourne in Australia, so I'm not going to be going anytime soon. And uh, they shared their presentations from this this meetup and one of them was darren doing a total cost of ownership analysis of having local hardware and running on the cloud and i don't know if it's confirmation bias or or what but it um it shows that did a really nice graph i'll put it in the uh, in the show notes but there's a really nice graph of kind of the cost of running locally and then the cost of running remotely and where the crossover point was where did it get become cheaper to run um remotely and i think he did that on a couple of different model sizes a fairly small one and a sort of medium-ish size one and it was uh, it was really interesting sort of showed that base load that above this level of utilization it makes more sense to run locally below this level then the uh, the cloud comes into its own um and i thought that was uh that was really interesting, but like I say, it might have been a confirmation bias type thing that uh, that's what I wanted to read into it. I guess the, the thing that that just jumped into my mind was when James was talking about 320 cores. If you've got if you've got model sizes that need that level of core count to uh, to solve to solve in a sufficient amount of time, then you know that's certainly a bit more challenging from a cloud perspective. So I mean, still it still kind of makes you realise certainly at the outset that HPC was never at the forefront of these cloud vendors' minds at the start. I think it's starting to switch up a little bit. So uh, AWS have got this funky elastic fabric network adapter. Yes, they do. Well, uh, so that's the tone of your voice there suggests you know something about it and might even have used it, which would be super interesting. Um, I mean, GCP, Google Cloud Platform, as far as I know, don't really do anything in terms of um, high bandwidth interconnects. You don't see anything in Finibandy on there, whereas Microsoft with their Azure platform tend to do it quite a lot more than the other two. So I, I guess for me that's an interesting dynamic where if you then have to go through and work through the uh, Elastic Fiber Network setup on AWS, which I'm hoping you're about to tell me how to do, um, <laughs> You you might that for me is a is, you know a, a significant factor in the you know in house set your infinity band up and you've got that that level of kind of scalability when you need to go up to that sort of core count. The so the, when I came across it was with a piece of work that CFD Direct did. Um, I think they were one of the early. Uh, either early adopters or they got a sneak peek of it or something along those lines. And they did some cases where they they compared 
performance with this um, elastic fabric adapter or whatever it's called. Um, it's only available on certain instances. There's only um, two or three different instance types that have it. Um, but they actually showed that for the first time in their sort of experience of, of networking and clustering um, public cloud uh, instances, it was actually cheaper to run on more instances. So previously, it, it sort of netted out at not really worth doing. Um, whereas with this one, it actually they they showed that it was it was cheaper to run on more cores, which was is kind of a nice from a AWS point of view. Yeah, yeah, run on more cores, more cores. I haven't actually tested it because it doesn't it hasn't touched me. I tend not to get into such huge models that I would need it. Um, where I take more advantage of kind of the spot market on AWS where I can get um, instances cheaper, which is the main benefit for me. So I think the main benefit for me is that horizontal scalability where I can run 25 cases at the same time if I want. Um, getting them a little bit quicker it doesn't have a huge value for me, um, particularly if they're on an overnight turnaround anyway. Um, getting it at finishing at three o'clock in the morning versus i don't know 10 o'clock it's not a big deal yeah I, yeah i think that fits kind of pretty clearly with what james was saying and just looking at those um, slides that you mentioned you know your kind of usability how what's your utilization i think the break even was somewhere around like 55 percent or something so you know if you're going to be using it for greater than 50 percent of the time then on site starts to pay off whereas you know lower than that um the cloud is is more cost effective um and i guess that you know that's just a a, a relatively simple i'm going to regret saying this it's kind of relatively simple workload workflow consideration yeah right? i mean it's nice for me it's nice that you've just got you've got that kind of such a broad choice of where to do these things it's not a case of particularly if you're just starting up it's not a case of oh, i need to find the money to build a rack of machines and then all the all the other costs that go with that you know if if you can't do that you can do something else if building a rack of machines fits for you go for it um th- that choice didn't exist not long ago if you weren't building it yourself or taking out a uh, a contract in some data center somewhere then you were that was it you were done um so you were having to save up until you could afford those computers before you could even start um, so yeah, it's kind of nice that uh, that that has changed and opened that up to to people. That's before you even get into the sort of variety of hardware. You know, the fact that you can dip your toe in the GPU um, scene. Or uh, there's another one that I've, I'm going to bring up in another episode and see if you know anything about. But um, I keep seeing more ARM processors um, knocking about and um, talk about open foam scalability on arm processors and what have you so but that's that's for another day that's for another day uh yes absolutely but i have seen the same things which kind of piqued my interest but you know was not a not something that's of practical relevance but yeah super interesting given that i'm imagining you won't see many arm processors creeping into the aws ec2 instance list i guess yeah they're already there although yeah, they, they just they announced okay. they did a, did a new one this morning or this week, I think. But it's only teeny tiny, I think, at the moment. It's as a um, it's a more of a web server type thing. But um, uh, yeah, they okay. got some. Yeah, I'd be interested in in what the other you know 
key applications that would benefit from that architecture would be other than the obvious open phone one that floats out yeah i don't know they they are they they are um instances always seem to be quite a bit cheaper so uh, yeah it should be interesting the other thing i got from the james interview was the old network is king um and we've mentioned two things earlier in the episode that I kind of circle back into this. One was the um, not saying about what work you do. A lot of my work comes from referrals and knowing somebody, knowing a guy who knows a guy and it's that guy or girl that um, knows what I've done as opposed to the whole of LinkedIn knows what I've done. Um, and there's that, that the network is actually quite small um in terms of where the where the work comes from um but the other aspect of it was the the network from the broader sense of things like going to conferences so you went to the nafems one you didn't go to the open phone one i didn't go to any of them um so if you went to the nafems one then i'm guessing you must have seen some value in going to that beforehand because it's not a, it's not like a free event that you can just that was next door you had to put some effort into actually going and, uh, and booking a ticket and all the rest of it um same with going to the open phone conferences etc there's i mean there's untold of these things to go to um what was your take on the old network is king or the networking aspects um yeah it's i definitely think it's something you shouldn't completely dismiss from a networking perspective i guess the thing that's useful to have in your mind is you know kind of who who are you looking to meet what sort of people from what sort of companies whether you're trying to focus on your potential client network do you need to go with a plan do you think did people just rock up to conferences and expect something good to happen um, where the only thing that's actually guaranteed to happen is that you're going to see some presentations yeah i think it's very useful to have an idea in mind what your you know what the purpose of you attending is are you trying to improve your network in terms of um, potential clients or are you trying to keep up with some of the latest developments in the field, in which case it's useful to meet and discuss some of these developments with the people that are working yeah. on them, which is then more kind of future capability mindset rather than um, client network mindset. So I just think it's it's useful to have that in mind. Um, and it's not something that I've necessarily done a lot. I haven't, um, I'm, I'm a slightly more frequent uh, conference attendee than yourself, but by no means... Yeah. Uh, no means. That's because I'm too tight. Some of them are bonkers, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I certainly don't hit. The, I haven't been hitting the road regularly uh, of late. I'm starting to think about trying to pick a few. The problem is there's a lot. Um, so if you're going to go through that process, then for me it was a case of, well, okay, why am I going to this? Am I am I going to try and talk to talk to potential clients, understanding some of the challenges facing potential clients in this particular industrial sector, or you know, am I going to look for uh, methods and tools that I could potentially offer to a broad range of clients or you know a particular sector and so for me that was where the NAFEM sat it sat more in the tools and techniques um, section and it to be fair it did a really quite good job there there was you know a couple of things that I mentioned earlier that were um, super interesting on that front um, but that was not part of my cunning plan that was just kind of how it turned out um, so yeah you've got to be kind of careful with you know uh, where you're going how far how much does it cost what do you want to get out of it 
Um, I mean, the Nathan's one was down in London, so it was not. Um, it was not. You know, I didn't have to book a transatlantic plane flight to to go and find out. So, I need to put more effort into um, justifying a trip to what well, the AWS one's like a week in Vegas. It's looking more kind of more like a music festival <laughs> and sort of almost debauched than it is a uh, cloud computing conference. Who'd have guessed? Well, absolutely. Uh, but then, you know, that's where that's the home of, of tech conferences, right? It Vegas. seems to be now, yeah. It does indeed. Um, I, I, well, I think we're quite lucky in, in this part of the world, given the, the you know, amount that are available in England and mainland Europe. Um, you know, we're quite fortunate that I don't think it's super expensive to, to get yourself to, to things that are super relevant for you. Um, but yeah, always useful to have a little bit of a, uh, is this a, is this a kind of me methods tool set thing or is this a, Client network, client problems, client challenges type learning activity. Or a gambling and free drinks type activity. Well, yeah, so a holiday. <laughs> Switching gears, um, oil and gas, Brian. That was a bit different. It was a bit different. Um, I super enjoyed it for its uh, its slight off-pieceness with regards to um, some of the other shows. But also, I mean, the, the, the kind of off-piecedness bit that I liked was just the, the kind of combination of diversity and depth with regards to the physics challenges involved in what Brian's working on um, and how you can imagine that CFD fits into that, but there's quite a lot else that he needs to consider and work around that's, you know, not how do I set up my reacting multi-phase foam open foam solver um just because of the you know the breadth of the challenges involved that you guys talked talk really well about yeah i don't know whether i mentioned it but the sort of upshot of these insight episodes would for me is kind of either oh they've got it really yeah uh, they've got it really easy should try doing some tricky cfd like i do or on the flip side oh my days i'm glad i don't do that and uh, this one definitely fell into the uh, to the latter category yeah, I, I guess that's that's kind of as a result of it being very detailed industry application where it's complicated from a number of different viewpoints, right? So it's probably complicated from setting your whichever flavour of open foam or otherwise, or yeah, yeah who knows what code exactly. And with that, but you know, so that's those codes are as you'll be well aware and i'm sure most people listening will be aware much more challenging to set up just because they've got a lot more modeling aspects and physics to consider but then that immediately broadens out to well okay so i've got to choose between these three particular models of um, what's going up like going on at my concrete gas interface however far down the well hole it was i can't remember it, it was, was a long, long way, way. Uh, it was a long way um so uh, what's the you know what's my rationale for choosing that model? Uh, okay, so oh, I'll, I'll just knock up a little lab experiment of a of a under undersea oil well plugging. Shall I? No, I can't do that. Ooh, right, okay. So now you kind of got a whole bunch of other head scratching around. How do I get a sense of of what a suitable modelling choice is? Um, and it just immediately expands into a bunch of other practical kind of engineering scientific problems of of trying to bring it all together. So I just really I really enjoyed that. that 
explosions may be a strong word, but that kind of rapid evolution of going from what you need to do in a CFD or a simulation environment to all of the other challenges that that immediately introduces so that you've got some level of confidence and whatever level of validation you can achieve against the simulations that you're trying to perform. Yeah, I think in, in a lot of industries, there's certain words to avoid. An explosion in the oil and gas industry might, unless that's what you're looking at, might be one to uh, to steer clear yes. of. The, the uncertainty struck me. I mean, the fact that they, I mean, I'm, I'm used to getting CAD models that are a little bit, perhaps a little bit ropey or, you know, there's a bit of guesstimation in there. But I mean, what is, they don't even know what's down there in a lot of the cases. I mean, yes, they do. But you know, you know what I mean? It's not... It's not a clean, nice, this is what we're doing. Um, there's erosion and, and all sorts going on and ageing and modifications. And uh, it's not even the same as last week's well. No, it's it's certainly more nuanced. And I thought that that was a, one of my major takeaways. Like you said, there's not um, it's not a kind of discrete relationship necessarily between any one input. Like you might tweak your, uh, your front spoiler angle on your... Um, don't go fishing again. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I was just waiting for the reaction. Uh, or, or, you know, some, I don't know, um, the flare on your wheel arch or, or whatever you might be doing. Um, I'll stop fishing now. Um, you know, and you can you can certainly understand in that context that there can be simpler kind of maybe even one-to-one relationships between the things, the inputs that you're changing and the outputs that you're looking at. But you certainly got the feeling from, from Brian's chat that there was, you know, you'd, uh, you'd be... You'd be delighted with your day's work if you found a one-to-one relationship between the input and the, the kind of output consequences from your model. That you know that really came across. I thought that was super insightful because that's not something that I see too much. That level of kind of complexity around around all of the things you have to have in your mind when you're looking at results from your simulation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there seems to be. Uh, we didn't go too deep into it, but it also seems to be a fairly um, active area there seems to be a lot going on i mean there's there's some areas of of cfd where there has a lot of, it's probably unfair i was going to say but not a lot's changed for quite a while whereas um, in some areas it's still it's evolving quite rapidly and that, that seemed to be one where they were taking advantage of all sorts of of different techniques and and developments that uh, that are coming in that um, that could make a fairly big difference yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's just I think part of the breadth, right? You've got so many, so many kind of aspects to the physics in different areas at different scales. Um I can't remember the length what was the length scale difference he was talking about? That there was a, a relatively small spatial region of interest at the interface between the concrete and the gas. Um, but that was happening, you know, at a distance many orders of magnitude compared to that length scale underneath the sea. <laughs> During the interview, kilometres and microns were all both mentioned, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's what that's, you know, oh, blimey, that's like nine orders of magnitude, isn't it? Bonkers. Um, yeah, so and that's, you know, that's just on a scale perspective. And then you've got all the different types of physics. So, yeah, I, that was um, that was quite eye-opening from my perspective. I guess the other bit of it was, you know, the, uh, the sums involved. So in terms of if you can... Um, take half a day off the rig time on on site then uh, somebody's put in a, uh, a fairly large amount of cash back in their pocket which is uh, always handy always drives innovation if you can uh, if you can do that sort of thing the 
flow of these episodes was sort of talking about the uh, what what we've done, talking about the uh, episodes, our takeaways, etc. But also, if we had anything to share from our time around the interwebs, do you have anything? Okay, so I guess um, I'll I'll cite a website that uh, I picked up from the Nafe. Oh, okay. Uh, so uh, we'll put it in the links, but if you've got your pen and paper handy, it's www.effective-quadratures.org. Wow. Uh, yeah, so this is one of the new WYSI um, techniques. So there was a super good presentation, one of the keynotes um, from a chap at Cambridge University in the Turing Institute, um, and he was talking about some examples of essentially uh, – dimensionality reduction in your uh in your design of experiments. Okay. so say you've got so you've got a really big number of input parameters three so i think one of these no bigger five bigger 25 yeah well, back on absolutely okay right so, that's that's a big number okay. that's a big number um so i mean obviously some of the challenge there is then doing enough simulations to get an initial idea of what your solution landscape looks like but once you've done that, then there's some mathematical techniques that you can use to essentially turn this 25-dimensional di- space into two dimensions. So you can draw some Ooh. nice contour plots and some nice line graphs. Um, and he was very uh, he was very good at the front. He just said, I like two dimensions. Um, so it was just... Yeah, some, yeah, me too. <laughs> well, everybody likes two dimensions. It's just simple, right? You can work out what's going on in two dimensions. I can draw uh, it. Exactly. Three gets quite tricky, and then obviously 25 is, is mind-boggling. <laughs> um, but for me, it was just um, a super um, interesting method to explore further, to then say, okay, here's a uh, relatively complicated from a mathematical perspective, but ultimately rewarding approach that allows you to look through your very complicated design space um, and work out what the you know the, the direct relationship between any of your input parameters are and the performance outputs that you're looking for. So, so have they uh, got a toolkit for that or something? Yeah, they've got a toolkit oh. for it. It's Python. It's open sourced. Um, I encourage everybody to go and have a look. Ooh. So, is there a uh, is there a jumping off point, or can anybody go and have a look at it? Would you need? Is it? Uh, have you had already had a look? Is it super tricky? Um, it's relatively tricky. I haven't looked into any of the. There's a good bunch of supporting material in terms of papers and tutorials, um, but you've got to be comfortable spending some time in a quiet, maybe slightly dark room with your pen and paper for maths and your Python. Any noise cancelling headphones? Yeah, those things. Um, you know, it's certainly not something that you could look at a few slides and then uh, go and knock something. I've up cracked in, it. In, 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 yeah, <laughs> it, it's not. It's not that. Um, and you know, it, it shouldn't be that. No. From, from the kind of capability that that you're looking at but if people have got challenges around significantly uh complicated numbers of input parameters to design of experiments or your know, performance relationships then it's certainly worth a good look cool link in the show notes as always um i i'm not going too far away from our comfy place to be honest in fact we did an episode about it but um saw the release announcement of the latest version of paraview um, I'm sure most people have, have looked at Paraview and have also bit come across, you know, release notes and what have you from from other packages. But man, this was, it was flicking through the released notes, if you like, the list of things that they'd added and changed from from Paraview um, previous versions to this five point seven. It was 
one of those where you scroll down. Yeah, that looks cool. Yeah, that looks cool. I'm going to try that. Uh, yeah, and that one. Yeah, that looks good. Um, and then down the rabbit hole of some of the other things that they do over at Kitware, there was a um, um, an update to Paraview Glance, a web browser-based tool for um, visualizing results. So you could effectively share some results with somebody who doesn't have Paraview and let them inspect them. They had um, framework for um, interrogating um, big data sets. Um, there was all sorts in there. It just ended up down this kind of rabbit hole of 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 new stuff, and all from the all from the same place. And it was like, ah. Oh, I, I could never hope to kind of get on top of all of the things that they've got going on at the moment. Whereas you, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was just a uh, just a release of a new new post processor with some I don't know faster contour plots or something like that. But absolutely not the case. And if it's something that you're interested in, I would uh, wholeheartedly recommend going and checking that out. Yes. Yeah, it's one way you look through it. I mean, I didn't look through the release notes in as much detail as you. There were a few that caught my eye, um, which was the cl- the glance capability. I think that's going to be super useful. The other one that I was interested in was ray tracing. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> as we were talking about shiny, shiny objects, um, shiny new things in the last social episode, um, they've done a very good job of increasing my desire to have a shiny new RTX capable NVIDIA graphics card yeah. for doing some nice ray tracing visualizations. So that's a, that's a dilemma I'm currently wrestling with. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't poured through the release notes, um, which after you've said it, um, I can kind of concur with, and I don't know, there must've been someone somewhere must've suggested that they make that version 6.0, right? Yeah. Well. It, was prob- it was probably worth a kind of major release number increment. Um, but the, uh, I was I've installed it and you know using it as I would normally use Paraview until it was this morning. I was like, oh, okay, let's uh, let's load my plugins, let's load my favorite, you know, good old favorite Surface um, LIC yeah. to get some nice oil flow type plots. The list of stuff in the plugins has gone up markedly. I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's longer. I was like, oh, right, okay, yeah, there's some things in here that I don't normally see. And that was one of my realizations of, okay, yeah, there was quite a long list of release notes that I didn't read. I should probably go and have a look at that. Yeah, there's plenty in there to dig into. The uh, the glance was interesting, um, but again, it's gonna, it's, yeah, it's gonna have to go on my uh, interesting, but I can't look at it right now um, list along with all the other ones, really. But um, yeah. It, I just thought as a as a sort of open source project, it's obviously well funded because of where it's coming from, but it was kind of a, uh, wow, that's the way to do it. Yeah, they're definitely uh, stepping that forward in uh, in big leaps in the right direction, aren't they? I think so. Um, and we've professed our uh, interest in it before, so that's uh, good that it's all going along nicely. The Paraview gods are smiling. The post-processing gods are smiling on it. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get people from. Uh, we mentioned TechPlot earlier, so we've we've done our uh, we've done our balance. Anything else? No, I think um, we've covered it. I think that was it. Well, I think we've I think we've covered it, Robin. Yes. Oh no, I've remembered something. The so I went when I when I release the episodes, I have to go and kind of update iTunes. We don't have to update iTunes, but you can go in iTunes and say refresh this so that everybody gets to to see the um, to see the latest episode. Otherwise, it gets refreshed at a certain time of day and it, it might be later and it gets confusing and what have you. But whilst I was in there, 
Apple haven't made it particularly easy to find out um, about your reviews and what have you, because each the reviews for the podcast go through the iTunes store and there are 120 something iTunes stores. Obviously they, the prime purpose of the iTunes store is for selling music. So um, they're all siloed around the world for different currencies and things like that. So if somebody does you a, a review in the store, it's in that store. Um, so I, from a particular page on the Apple website, I know I've got three reviews. I don't know where they are. I did manage to track one of them down because it was in the States. Um, so three, we've got three five-star reviews. So if anybody else wants to uh, drop a five-star review, you don't have to write anything. I think you can literally scroll down to the bottom in Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever, click five stars and then run away. That's uh, that's excellent. But if you do, then let us know because otherwise I don't I don't see them because I, I know I do have some spare time, but flicking through 120-odd iTunes stores um, to, to see where my reviews might be... Um, it's not top of my list but uh, if you do write one let me know only five stars a whole new world to me and i'm quite enjoying the concept of you having to spend some time finding where the reviews are because you don't know so sorry that's the 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 mischievous part of my nature quite enjoys that so obviously super happy for people to leave five star reviews you know and not as disappointed as you would be if they didn't actually tell you where they were if you do want to get in touch with us do The, the links are in the show notes you've probably connected with us on linkedin if you haven't do that and uh, we'll carry on the discussion wherever that might be on the social webs or on the emails if we go old school absolutely well um, hope everybody enjoyed that and look forward to catching up again in a few weeks will we cool take care simon and you